it's really hard to imagine that those kids are ever going to feel like they can be who they are in that space, that they can belong. And all those fancy words that we throw in education when we talk about inclusion, belonging, equity, implicit bias, all of those trainings, those things that we've been talking about, it seems like they have all fallen away when it comes to Palestinian children and the Palestinian community in this country. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher out here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 20 in the classroom for me. And this here, of course, is all of the above, your home for news and analysis of, analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. Shout out to anybody who might be tuning in for the very first time. Now, ordinarily, these, these full video format episodes drop every other week. And in this case, we have two full episodes back to back, two in a row uh, within one week, which Jeff is is out of the ordinary. This is one of those um, kind of like when a teacher has a, a, a lesson plan laid out and then something's going on in the world and they got to kind of put that lesson plan to the side and, and do things a little different. Uh, I, I think today's today's agenda is a, a reflection of that since we are putting this out right away. So so let's just get right to it, Jeff. Talk to us what's on the agenda for today's episode. Yeah, man. Well, well, today, <clears throat> excuse me. Today we got a good one for everybody uh, as usual. And um, today, man. Well, honestly, I have to say, I think we are going to be digging into a very serious conversation. One that is probably among the most urgent, uh, among the most important, uh, among the most required conversations that we have ever had here on the show. Um, we, from the beginning, we created this show with the vision of uh, a conversation about education with the lens of a teacher and an administrator looking at the critical issues in our profession, looking at issues of justice and equity uh, and fairness in the profession. And in many ways, because education touches the entirety of our society, um, you know, there, there is a, a political lens on the conversation as well. And today's uh, episode is certainly no exception to that. We have um, with us today a guest who we've previously had on the show who's back. Um, her name is Dr. Sosin Jaber. She's a renowned, uh, award-winning educator, English teacher out of uh, the Chicago area, uh, nominee for the 2023 Illinois State Teacher of the Year, and also um, has quite a, uh, a practice and presence on being a, an advocate for bringing the voices and humanity of Palestinians and Palestinian Americans into the classroom. And we are going to be talking about, uh, talking with her about uh, how to do that, about the important work that we as educators have in front of us to, uh, to discuss in truthful and honest ways the ethnic cleansing and genocide that's happening uh, in Palestine right now and um, the complexities of being an educator in this kind of environment, being an advocate um, for the safety and the humanity of um, Palestinian and Arab and Muslim students generally uh, by extension. And we're gonna be digging into all of that uh, with her today. It is gonna be a, a moving, a powerful, and an important conversation. 
Um, so stick around for that today, folks. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah, you don't, definitely don't want to miss that. And um, I think it's also important, I think, to to point out to our, our viewers and our, our listeners that, you know, there there's there might be somebody among them, there might be, who are asking, well, they're, they're bringing on a guest to, to share about the Palestinian experience, but what about the Israeli experience? What about what happened to uh, those Israelis who were killed and who were kidnapped? And I, I definitely want our, our listeners to, to resist the urge to go right there, because especially, I mean, on this show, when we, when we bring guests on, our intention always is to, to center a, a marginalized perspective that doesn't get heard a lot, that doesn't get a lot of airtime. And, and Dr. Jaber uh, you know, expressed to us during our conversation before our conversation, just how uh, invisible she feels and how alone she feels all of a sudden um, as folks like are, are kind of afraid of, of talking about Palestine and, and, and bringing her in and, and, and hearing her voice. And I think about other guests that we've had and, you know, when we had you know, uh, episode centering the the voices of our our native youth, and we had Dr. Uh, Valeria Big Eagle. We didn't we didn't have anybody like, oh, what, what about the non-native youth? And you know, when we had Dr. Bettina Shea uh, bring on her own dopeness and share about uh, the Asian American experience and Asian American uh, issues and struggles uh, with solidarity within the education system, we didn't have anybody like, oh, what, what about the non-Asian Asian students? So if anybody out there is is has approached this episode and was like, wait, they're, they're having somebody on to, to share about um, her own roots and, and experiences and views as a Palestinian, but what, what, what about the Israelis? Um, trust me, trust me, um, there are many resources out there and many voices out there, especially here in California, from our governor to our Los Angeles mayor to the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District, who are very firmly, outspokenly uh, expressing their support for Israel. And um, there's plenty of source, uh, resources out there. And we thought here at all, at all of the above, it's particularly important to bring on some perspective that is often shut down, that is often like just, you know, being honest, me, myself, as an educator, part of me is like, like, well, you know, what might be the pushback? What might be the blowback for speaking about Palestine and the Palestinian experience and what's happening in Gaza? And I don't really feel that with other issues. So here we are. And if you are listening to this episode and you're thinking, oh, what about, what about, what about? Please pause that. Please set that to the side, perhaps, and maybe ask yourself why that's your immediate, uh, immediate response. And um, listen Listen to Dr. Jaber as she expresses what her and her family um, are going through, but uh, also her work as an educator and the difficulty in advocating for anything related to the humanity of Palestinians specifically, but our Arab youth and our Muslim youth in general. All right, so definitely looking forward to this episode. Definitely looking forward to this seminar. But as always, like, you know, we're teachers and there's stuff on our lesson plan that we got to get to. So we got to do now next. We're going to talk about some uh, news and headlines in the world of education um, before we get to that seminar. All right. So that's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's do now. Let's take a look at what's happening in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the do now? today. Well, man, well, today uh, we're going to see if people are ready. Okay, we got a surprise for you. Hope you've been paying attention. Hope you did your studying, did your homework. We got a pop quiz for you, man. Well, pop quiz time. Ooh, pop quiz. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Jeff. I'm sure back in the 90s, you saw that Spike Lee classic, uh, Mo Betta Blues. I want to know what rhymes with better but makes kids very much worse. (laughs) 
Man, now that you've mentioned Mo Better Blues, I'm thinking about uh, on the Roots album, Things Fall Apart, when they had a clip, uh, I think it was on like the intro track to that album of Wesley Snipes, uh, you know, yelling at the rest of the band, like, you know, you, 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 like the people don't come to see us play because you don't give the people what they want. And it's just like one of the most brilliant lines, uh, insightful lines about, you know, the, the culture and history and evolution of black music in this country and co-optation um, of black music in this country, which has nothing to do with the question you just asked, but you made me think of it. So <laughs> I love me some good Spike Lee movies, man. It's been a while. I've had to dust off those DVDs. Um, what rhymes with better but makes kids worse? I'm going to say cheddar. Cheddar cheese is full of fat and salt. And, Interesting. Um, cheddar. Cheddar. That's my answer. Very interesting. You definitely sound like a student who did not uh, study for this quiz because for one, you went on a wild tangent and then you I came sure back did. and had a very not correct answer. Um, I suggest, Mr. Garrett, you spend some more time studying and less time, less time on social media because, uh, of course, the answer here is Meta, the parent mm. company of Facebook and Instagram. Been spending too much time on social media, Jeff. That's why you missed that one. All right. This story. The story here comes to us from Kara Arundel for K-12 Dive, and she reports about a bipartisan collection of attorneys general in 41 states and the District of Columbia who announced recently that they are suing Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, alleging that it designed and deployed harmful social media features targeting children and teens. In one filing, states joined in a complaint saying the company's platforms have, quote, profoundly altered the psychological and social realities of a generation of young Americans. The Florida lawsuit reads, quote, the overwhelming mental health needs of students caused by oversaturation of social, me of social media have forced schools to respond. The state's complaints are similar to multi-district litigation filed in March, which consolidated lawsuits against social media companies from several school districts. In the multi-district filing, plaintiffs are suing social media companies, including Meta, but also uh, the companies behind Snapchat, TikTok, and YouTube over claims that their apps are addictive, damaging to students' mental health, and draining to schools and other government resources. In an email, a Meta spokesperson said in response to the lawsuits, quote, we're disappointed that instead of working productively with companies across the industry to create clear age appropriate standards for the many uh, for the many apps that teens use, the attorneys general have chosen this path. Well, Jeff, social media companies coming under some some fire. We have some lawsuits, multiple lawsuits happening about what these social media companies, um, what role they might have had in um really messing up our young people, man, or at least uh, contributing contributing to uh, ongoing mental health challenges and uh, associated problems uh, among our youth. What are your thoughts on this, Mr. Social Media, um, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Garrett? Yeah, well, folks know, uh, we've talked about this a few times before on the show, man. Well, I'm officially the old man Grinch who is like social media <laughs> is the devil and children should not be on social media at all. Now, I also admit <laughs> that I am biased and scarred by my time as an administrator and the number of, you know, felonies and other kinds of things that uh, I saw students inadvertently, you know, commit on social media or 
advertently, is that a word? Commit on social media. But uh, so I'm not a fan at all. I think, um, Manuel, at the, at the largest scale, the idea of these lawsuits is amazing. I hope they win. I honestly, like this, I know that what's probably going to happen is they're going to reach a settlement, you know, a year or two from now because uh, Facebook has unending sums of money. Uh, or Meta has unending sums of money and will lobby, you know, buy off judges and buy off Congress people that, I mean, frankly, they've already bought off, but uh, they'll do even more of that. And they'll get off with some somewhat hefty fine that will effectively be a slap on the wrist for this company that's worth, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, but this is uh, an organization that preys upon young people, absolutely, that exploits young people. Um, and this is their... Corporation is a perfect encapsulation, Manuel, of how the mechanisms of the market function and don't require individuals to be, you know, the boogeyman themselves, right? Um, this, this is literally an industry that doesn't care if our children live or die, and the re and I say that literally, Manuel. The re you might say, okay, of course they don't want the children to die because they can't continue to profit off of them if they die. Well, if that was happening with all the children, that might be true. But they actually profit, literally, Manuel, from suffering and misery from a good chunk of the children because that generates clicks, right? They're making money off the stories about kids who are committing suicide and self-harm and getting into fights at school and all these sorts of things because it generates clicks, which generates ad revenue, okay? Like, that is the insidiousness of this industry that we're talking about, and I could not be happier that state attorneys general are out here suing them. I hope they sue them for trillions of dollars. Like, literally, I hope they cripple this company, Meta, this collection of companies, this, you know, corporate house of cards, and cripple them, bring them to the ground, Manuel, and we can start over with social media in something that has regulations that actually serve the interests of the people rather than the interests of the greediest, most exploitative among us. Um, I could not be uh, have a lower opinion <laughs> of the impact of social media on young people I think it's extremely dangerous. I think we need to regulate it like we do with everything else that's extremely dangerous for young people to be around or to intake into their bodies, like alcohol or other kinds of drugs, like sex, like, um, you know, uh, dangerous toxic chemicals, uh, like firearms, like, like social media is in that category of things, okay? Uh, that's how I feel about it. Couldn't be happier that this lawsuit is happening. I'm I'm having trouble discerning in your response exactly uh, whose side you're on here, Jeff. Um, sounds like you're anti-social media uh, by a hair, by a little bit. Um, yeah, I too am very much anti everything with social media. I think anybody who listens to all of the above or watches our shows, anybody who came of age prior to social media being what it is. I think a lot of us, you know, look back at at those days and think about what young people go through now and just feel some sense of 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 fear for what impact, what ongoing impact this is going to have because just seeing young people grapple and struggle with 
being constantly connected, constantly online, I just feel for them. I wish they could experience, like I, I share this with students a lot or like routinely, like I wish you could just experience what it's like to not have that in your life, to like the school bell rings and you know, you do whatever after school activities and go home and like, you're truly disconnected. Like there's a level of peace and harmony that came with that. And of course there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, benefits of being connected, especially for our most marginalized youth who, who like it's, it's the social media spaces where they find um, the, 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 where they feel seen and, and they have the connections that, that help them understand who they are and, and, and be who they are. But, but it's mostly bad. It's mostly, mostly bad. And we've talked about this on the show several times. I do hope that these lawsuits result in some kind of tangible action, but I'm not hopeful that that will be the case. Uh, I'm thinking about the opioid crisis that uh, our nation have seen has seen over the last several decades. And there's been some massive settlements of, I don't know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars around that. But like the damage is kind of done. Like we already, like we're still seeing the ongoing impact of pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies cashing in on that addiction and you know we're seeing that across the nation still people reeling from the impact of substance abuse and in how that can uh, just really crash somebody's life so it's one of those things where even if there is some massive settlement I don't know man so much damage has already been done and I don't see things being uh, fully like rewritten like you said like it would be great to see it bring them to their knees and, and let's start from scratch with some real regulations but um, you know we don't we don't really live in the type of system that's set up for that, uh, not with so much money on the line for sure. But, you know, uh, shout out to the, the school districts and the states and these attorney generals for stepping up and trying to do something. And, you know, we could just continue to, to do what we can as educators to try to help students understand the impact and uh, help them understand how to, I don't, I don't even know, man, like self-monitoring and all that stuff. It's just like, I don't even know that that really helps. You know what I'm saying? Like, I we need bolder action than us educators like talking to students about the social media use. But you know, this is still something to be uh, in support of, and hopefully, it's one of many actions that could come down and do something to address this ongoing problem that we're seeing um, with teens' uh, social media use. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Manuel. There's definitely a, a reasoned wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> what you yeah. just said, and I'm not holding my breath here on the trillion dollar lawsuits uh, to, to Meta. Uh, I do hope, though, that these attorneys general do not back down lightly. This needs to be an absolutely devastating financial blow uh, to these organizations because they have dealt devastating financial blows to state governments, to local governments, to school systems, to individual schools. And I think if Parents, if the taxpayers out there understood the extent to which the uh, schools are having to resource in different ways to deal with the harmful effects of social media, uh, people might feel differently about it, right? Um, yeah. That this is not an insignificant financial toll that it's taken and, and sort of personnel toll that it's taken um, on schools. You know, of course, there are some positive effects of social media as well. And so maybe there's some financial benefit of that that we would have to consider also. But these corporations absolutely uh, it make money off of doing harm to our youth, exploiting our youth, uh, stealing their data illegally and using it against them and their families. And they absolutely should pay a, uh, a, a extreme penalty for this kind of behavior. Yeah. 
Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Um, all right, Jeff, let's do a, a non-technology story here because technology is not all bad, Jeff. Um, so let's, let's just, you know, enough about the harms of technology. Let's move on uh-huh. to uh, something else happening in the school system. Jeff, so what's yeah. our next quiz question? Well, Manuel, uh, next question for you is, who's teaching our children the beautiful art of finding their voice in school, Manuel? Finding their voice? What are you, a communist? This is America, Jeff. <laughs> Students don't need to find their own voice. All they need no. to know is the voices of our brave founding fathers mm. and perhaps the voice of Jesus Christ. Oh, There's only voices oh, they need, Jeff. <laughs> Try, stop trying to get yes. in their heads and turn them into who knows what. Yes. Stop that, well, the, communist. The great white men, and then, of course, Jesus, who also obviously was a great blonde-haired, blue-eyed white man as well. So yes, Obviously. Yes. I've seen the paintings. Yes. Duh. <laughs> I've seen the paintings, yes. Oh, goodness, man. Now I just had a flashback to that scene in, uh, in Spike Lee's uh, Malcolm X when he's in prison and the, the like uh, priest or whoever's uh, yeah. teaching in prison is like asking him about Jesus and he's like and he turns to the painting and he's like well Jesus was white of course isn't it obvious and he goes that is obvious <laughs> and then he quotes the scripture about you know hair like wool and feet the color of brass or whatever so yeah. anyways uh, side notes today shout out to Spike Lee man a lot of a lot of good movies in that 40 acres and a mule collection um, yeah Yes. Okay, Manuel. The uh, did you give an answer to the to the question there? Did I? <laughs> I got sidetracked. I didn't. Uh, okay. So I'm just I'm just wrong. I guess you're uh, just I, wrong. I don't really yes. have an answer, okay. Jeff. I don't think kids need to find their own voice. I think that's how okay. that's how you get in their head and and get them to I don't know want to change identities or something crazy. Yes. Well, the correct answer to this question, Manuel, is Skynet. Uh, which you know, ah. for uh, for all of my Terminator fans out there, is the uh, the AI that brought about the apocalypse in the James Cameron. Uh, I think it was James Cameron. Uh, used to be a trilogy. Now it's a, like whatever. They got like seventeen movies with seventy five year old Arnold in them. But uh, all that to say, um, not exactly Skynet, but uh, the precursor to, <laughs> to Skynet, uh, known as Chat GPT. Uh, Manuel. So let's get into this. Uh, This story is brought to us by uh, Javarius Salman. I hope I'm saying that person's name correctly uh, from the Heckinger Report. And now that ChatGBT is here to stay, experts like Sarah Levine from Stanford's Graduate School of Education are trying to figure out how to teach writing to K-12 students in the age of AI. Quote, the question that teachers are having to ask themselves is, what's writing for, Levine said. ChatGPT can produce a perfectly serviceable writing product, but writing isn't a product per se. It's a tool for thinking, for organizing ideas, or figuring out what you think. Earlier this year, Levine and her team conducted a pilot using ChatGPT in a San Francisco high school. They found that students looked to chat. Uh, to ChatGPT primarily for help in two categories. One, ideas or inspiration to get started on the prompt questions, and two, guidance on the writing process. What the kids are now getting from AI is what expert writers already have, a big bank of examples that they can draw from when they're creating. While the study is ongoing, the early findings revealed something surprising. Kids weren't excited about ChatGPT's writing. They thought it was too perfect, or like a robot, Levine said. She also said that to her, 
That was the big takeaway of the pilot. When students contrast their own writing with ChatGPT's more generic version, they were able to understand what their own voice is and what it does. So Manuel, I have been highly skeptical of AI and ChatGPT specifically. Um, I am a stodgy, curmudgeonly uh, <laughs> old man <laughs> in this equation. Uh, but I, this story really stood out to me as like, are there positive uses for tools, for AI tools in the classroom like this that people like me have perhaps been suspect of or ignoring that we should be exploring. And I'm very curious to get your, your take on this. Well, Jeff, I didn't read the article, so I just went to chat GPT and asked it <laughs> what it thought. Um, and I'll, I'll throw that up on the screen for folks who are viewing this, but I asked chat GPT, can ChatGPT be a useful tool for teaching students how to write well? And uh, shocker, actually shocker, Jeff, it says, um, yes, ChatGPT can be a useful tool for teaching students how to write well, but it should be used in conjunction with other teaching methods and not as a sole or primary resource. And then Jeff, it goes on to list uh, some positive uses for uh, ChatGPT with um, for use in integrating um, a lesson plan with uh, uh, helping students learn how to write well. And then it lists some considerations and some potential limitations. So, you know, to be fair, it does admit that it should be used in conjunction and, and very uh, carefully and skillfully used, if at all. Um, so there is that. And I do, I, I know there are a lot of teachers, like a lot of teachers who have um, expressed their intention to, instead of trying to limit or restrict uh, these tools, uh, to, to use them, to integrate them into their own teaching and learning so that um, students could use them as tools. Um, and I know there's a lot of resources out there. There've been a lot of presentations, a lot of workshops. There's been a lot of PD out there about how to use AI in the classroom. Um, so, you know, I, I do think there's an area I, I think there's a lot to that, and I do think a lot of these tools can be very useful for various things. However, overall, overall, I do think we need to be focusing more attention on critically disrupting our march towards just allowing these billion-dollar companies to dramatically transform the world, the society that we exist in, like ChatGPT, the P stands for pre-trained. It's trained off of existing stuff that humans made, and you're not giving any credit to those authors when you're having students uh, utilize this particular um, this particular particular uh, generative AI uh, model. You're not giving any credit to whatever authors that it pulled from because it's not giving any credit to them. So there's ethical concerns there um, right off the bat. And of course, you know, folks have talked about the ethical concerns uh, with um, generative AI that, that creates visuals and art and the artists that it's been trained on and how those artists are not getting any, any uh, a single cent or recognition for um, contributing to this, this uh, very big money-making endeavor that so many companies are investing in. So there's ethical considerations there. I think about how when cell phones first came out, teachers like myself were of the mindset of instead of trying to fight against it, um, it's inevitable, it's happening. So get with the program and find ways to use it positively in the classroom. And that was fine for a little while. And now we've reached a point where that's no longer fine because now, just like our last story reported, um, mobile technology and then social media that's connected to it is doing so much damage that it's like, maybe we shouldn't have just accepted it so easily as it was emerging. 
emerging. Maybe we should have been more critical about it and slowed it down some before finding ourselves in a situation where it's just, we just can't do nothing but accept it. So that's my main message to teachers, to educators out there who are of the, let's use it, let's learn how to utilize it in the classroom. My main message is there, there are uses for it. I agree, I acknowledge that. But there are ethical considerations and more importantly, these for-profit companies, they do not have our humanity at heart as they try to um, continue to, to grow this and, and instill this into our everyday experience. And we need to be a voice for slowing this down and critically analyzing the extent to which the overall, uh, whether this is an overall benefit for our young people. So, um, you know, that's my that's my take. I get it, I see it, I, I, I get that there's benefits to it. So I'm not, you know, shut it all down, but I wish we could do more to critically assess it before just having the mindset of like, well, it's here to say, so might as well just utilize it. Cause I think that's the mindset that a lot of educators have now. It's just like, oh, it's here to stay. So you might as well get comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I that resonates with me deeply, Manuel. And um, I will say, I do think what was described in this article was fascinating from the standpoint of introducing AI into the classroom as a vehicle for helping students explore approaches to writing in a way that, that would be impossible for one teacher to do with a large class, right? To have this highly personalized, like, craft something, dump it into ChatGPT, get some feedback, see what ChatGPT comes with, comes up with, critique it. Like a teacher couldn't do that with 30 kids in a class at once, right? Yeah. Um, not for each individual kid. And so there's a, there's a personalization and a labor reality component of this that I think could actually be really intriguing. Um, I, now, in order for me to endorse that, I would need to see that the AI is uh, bound very strictly by some, you know, by some ethical rules that actually center the the a non-exploitative relationship of the information that children will be funneling into the uh, into the app. So no profit being made off of it, no use of the data for marketing purposes, no selling to third parties at all, right? Like purely for educational internal use, right? Now how we control that, police that, regulate that. I don't know. The financial incentives for these folks to use this data in malicious ways is through the roof. So, you know, and, and by malicious, I don't always mean that like they're coming to ruin you, but like malicious in the sense that like they're going to figure out, oh, your family's having a stressful time right now, so we should start marketing chocolate cake and, you know, uh, massages to your parents or whatever, right? <laughs> like, like, it's that level of greed that, you know, that is driving what's happening here. And so, so I would need to see some real safeguards and regulation with stiff penalties for corporate folks who want to break these rules. If we could do that, uh, this could offer a tool to support students with the immensely important craft of writing in a way that could be powerful. Uh, so I appreciate the study. I remain a skeptic, but I'm like, I, I'm interested to see what comes out of this. I am too. I am too. And I'm growing less afraid of where this is all going because I've, I've been tuning into various uh, various podcasts and reading various articles by folks who know a lot more about artificial intelligence um, than I do in terms of what these um, what what these models actually do. 
But I am also very much keenly aware that the technology is rapidly evolving, rapidly evolving, and it is in the interests of these companies to be the first to get to something, like to get to the next level. So the race to have like the best AI out there, I think is going to dramatically change what this looks like in the classroom, just like with cell phones. Like at first it was like, cool, nice little tool. You could access stuff and, and whatever. And, and now it's it's very different. So I think with, with AI, whatever it studies find using the current chat GPT, either three or four um, versus what they're gonna find five years from now, you know, again, that's why I'm like, you know, we 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 should continue to critically question because it's a rapidly evolving situation and we don't know what it's gonna look like in five years in the classroom. It might be to the point where the lesson plans described in this article are just so obsolete because, you know, for whatever reason. So always question, always question. All right, folks. That's about it for today's do now. I don't, I don't, I don't think we did too well on those quiz questions, Jeff. I, I, I don't think we had the, uh, the right answers there. But, um, you know, next time we'll just pop them into the old algorithm machine and uh, get, get the right answers from a whatever the next iteration of chat GPT will be. But up next, folks, we have a very important discussion, pressing discussion uh, with Dr. Jaber, Dr. Sosin Jaber, who will uh, share a bit as a award-winning educator and as the daughter of Palestinian refugees, uh, share a bit about um, all that's happening and how it impacts our students right now in the classroom. So stay tuned, seminar up next. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we are privileged and honored to have with us today uh, a very important guest. Uh, one might argue this is among the most urgent and important guests we've had uh, on all the, all the above in the history of our show. Um, and we are going to be exploring a topic today that is uh, front and center, most certainly in the news media. Um, and also front and center in the minds of heart and hearts of people that uh, are concerned with justice, concerned with life, uh, concerned with issues related to colonialism and resistance against it. Um, and we are honored to have back with us today uh, Dr. Sosin Jaber, um, who's here to help us explore uh, in particular 
the issues surrounding what is happening right now in Palestine and Israel, uh, the genocide and ethnic cleansing that is taking place there, and how we should be engaging with this topic in the nation's schools. Um, so Dr. Jaber, welcome back to All the Above. Thank you for having me. Um, thank you for taking this topic that most people choose to be silent on on and bringing it here. I, we, I can't tell you how much, how appreciated and how, um, like I said earlier, it feels like a lifeline. It feels like there's been so much silence that when someone does speak up, it feels like a breath of fresh air and like you can breathe for a little bit. So thank you. Well, you are welcome. We're, we're very grateful to have you with us today. And folks, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Dr. Sosin Jaber is a global educator, presenter, equity strategist, curriculum designer, and keynote speaker of over 20 years. She is currently a high school English department chair and a district equity leader at Maine West High School in Park Ridge, Illinois. Dr. Jaber founded Education Unfiltered Consulting and works with schools nationally and internationally. She completed her PhD in curriculum and instruction with a focus on inclusion and belonging of students from marginalized communities. Dr. Jaber was nominated for Illinois Teacher of the Year for 2023, was awarded the Cook County Teacher of the Year also in 2023, an IDEA Teacher of the Year in 2022, and is an ISTE 20 to Watch awardee for 2023 as well. Uh, welcome again, Dr. Jaber, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. All right, Dr. Jaber, back in the building. It's been a minute since we have had you on, all of the above. Uh, we do wish we were meeting under better circumstances this time around. As a child of Palestinian refugees and a committed educator, an award-winning educator, I might add, um, who has done a lot of work to help bring visibility to the humanity and the struggle of, of Palestinians into the curriculum. First off, we just want to know, how are you holding up in this moment? And what can you share with us about the experiences of our Palestinian students across the U.S. and their Arab and Muslim peers as um, they attend our U.S. schools during these unimaginable circumstances? Oh, so many parts to that. Um... I even feel like my gusto that I usually bring into these spaces is not, we're tired. You know, it's been 20 days of nonstop bombardment. And I think if, if educators need to know anything about Palestinian students and the Palestinian community in general, it's that Palestinians are glued to their TV screens and the generational trauma of, of the occupation of Palestine is really hitting home in different ways. I think we have been, we have we are used to war, right? Like we have been occupied since 1948. This isn't the first incursion in Gaza. This is different, though. Um, it's different in a lot of different ways. I think it's different because social media has really bought it into our homes in a lot of ways that we are seeing a much more graphic image. And it's not the first time we've seen graphic images. We've kind of seen pictures in the aftermath of like the 1967 war of Sabran Shatila of the 2009 incursion in Gaza of the 2014 incursion in Gaza. But this is just more, much more violent. Um, it seems like political officials around the world and elected officials around the world are behind Israel without any question whatsoever. And so um, the desensitization that has led up to this moment where people don't feel uh, that there's humans at the other side of this, right? Like it's the concept of the children of darkness and the children of light that came out of the prime minister of Israel, right? Like the the kids from the heavens and the kids from the jungle or whatever that quote was that went viral that 
he posted and tweeted and then quickly erased, but like that concept that we have bought into so wholeheartedly here in the United States and in other parts of the world to watch this and see it happen and not acknowledge it and not say it needs to stop to the point where the United States and other countries will veto humanitarian aid in the United Nations and a humanitarian pause because we're not human and we still continue to send financial and military support. Um, schools, entire districts this time here in the Illinois state where the largest population of Palestinians in the country lives, uh, have sent letters to their entire communities supporting Israel. And I just, what is that saying about how you regard us as people? Do you regard us as people? <laughs> like, it's just, it's really hard to imagine that those kids are ever going to feel like they can be who they are in that space, that they can belong. And all of those fancy words that we throw in education when we talk about inclusion, belonging, equity, implicit bias, all of those trainings, those things that we've been talking about, especially during COVID and post-COVID, it seems like they have all fallen away when it comes to Palestinian children and the Palestinian community in this country. I have, I am, there's in every country's history, there's things that we are not proud of. But as a Palestinian American, I have never felt so conflicted and embarrassed <laughs> to be American at this moment. I feel like I can't reconcile these two parts of myself that just can't live in harmony at all with me right now. My tax dollars are supporting this genocide, whether I like it or not. Um, it's it's hard. It's difficult. I think our kids are really struggling because claiming your Palestinian identity often means you're anti-Semitic in and of itself. I mean, as an educator, before I even talk about students, I had an administrator a couple of years ago tell me that my Palestinian was I, I, I my Palestinian identity was offensive, and he asked me to tone it down. Like, this was an administrator. So, like, if that is if you feel like someone's identity is offensive, you are invalidating and negating their lived experience and their ability to claim their lived experience in a space. What are we doing? How can we sit here and talk about being equity advocates or shaping and crafting tomorrow's future if these are the very foundations and conversations that are happening in real time? In another classroom where there was a massive population of students, I want to say close to 60% in one school that are Arab, in a class with at least six Palestinian students, a teacher in a global studies class told students, you deserve what's happening to you because you walk around knifing people and made him apologize. Like what in the world? Not only is this harmful to our children and negating them, how are they not supposed to create a double consciousness and a sense of duality to survive these spaces because they need to go to school and they need to get their education like everyone else? But what picture are we creating as a window for all of these other kids that are sitting in that classroom and they see their teacher as an expert of a content. And this is what they're hearing in and out of every single classroom and so many of our classrooms across the country. And so for us to sit here and wonder why people have become so desensitized, there's been decades of indoctrination way before 9-11 about who Arabs are, about who Muslims are. The media's connecting and conflating what's happening in Hamas with Hamas and what's happening in the Middle East right now, what's happening in Palestine with ISIS and with 9-11 and calling it Israel's 9-11 has reactivated so much of the hate that exists existed then where it feels like deja vu for so much of the Arab community, but magnified by so much more because there's a much, there's an ease of communication and 
a flow of communication that's happening now with the algorithms and with social media that people are inundated in that messaging across the board from leadership in countries, from schools, from media. It's coming from everywhere. And so people are buying into it. I've spoken at rallies and protests. Last week, I spoke at a protest of 25,000 people. We walked and we, we spoke to so many people in the rally from so many different backgrounds. Not once did I hear a call for violence or a call for blood or a call for killing or a call for anything but peace. And the next day in an Israeli rally, they were holding posters that said, kill them all. And there's just this idea that we are the ones that are violent, that we deserve what's happening to us when everything that we are seeing in the media and in the news, the reality of it is quite the opposite. Um, Schools have never been more hostile than they are right now for Palestinian students, for Palestinian teachers, and for anybody who's advocating for Palestine. Um, I have been called in to the office to speak to my pro-Palestinian posts. And my response was, this is my family's history and my family's experience, and you can't deny that. You can't deny me that. Uh, I have the right to post and speak and educate and elevate. That is the least that I can do. We have survivor's guilt, we have generational trauma, we have so many different things that we are trying to, and we're tasked with educating everybody else at the same time. And you're dealing with these kind of the grief and the loss and, and trying to do all of those things, but still show up in school and be the great teacher or the great leader or the great whatever it is that you are and go up to your spaces, but still also be your child's therapist. And the, one of the few people that is in our children's circles that understands what our children are experiencing. So we have to be present as parents as well. And it's just all of these different roles and hats. Where do you even start, right? And then I think part of the troubling part of it is that people you work with and collaborate with and you have spoken to and work, like we've collaborated when George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement was at its height. There was collaboration when things were happening happening at our southern border, there was collaboration. And it's like Angela Davis called it way back when, when she said progressive except for Palestine. So many of those people have been silent. And I have waited for people to come out and speak because you can't pick and choose. If you're an equity warrior, you either are or you aren't. And this is not any different. We are. This is very much, I always say Palestine is very much an American issue. We are one of the countries, if not the country that has funded the, the Israel in every possible way. And our president has literally got up and questioned the honesty of the Palestinian people and made some very big accusations. This presidential election, I mean, whether we're talking about DeSantis or other people, he literally got up and said, you can't trust Palestinians. They're liars. We can't take any Gazan refugees. Like, we know that this is a country that is is really built on fear. And every presidential election has elevated fear to bring people to the ballot. And this is not any different. The last three elections have focused on terrorism and we've been the face of terrorism. But this time it is Palestine and Palestinians and the irresponsibility of everybody who has a platform and is speaking is leading to hate in our communities. We are the, already the only country in the world that has school shootings. How do we not have an interest in creating community and in people understanding each other so that we are not afraid of each other, but we are literally working to elevate more and more fear and elevate the hate crimes that we are seeing happening. I mean, our private schools in Illinois have been closed um, for almost 10 days now because they keep receiving bomb threats. Those that they've been on e-learning. Um, the little boy that was uh, stabbed 26 times in Plainfield uh, two weeks ago, we, there was a boy that was thrown out of his sixth floor dorm room and died in, in New Jersey. The hate crimes are just, and you're not hearing about a lot of these things on the news because 
it's not important right now. What's important is that Israel needs to protect itself. That's the narrative that we've bought into and that we choose to support and elevate here. Mm. Yeah, uh, Dr. Jayra, you know, it's there's so much there to, to what you just said. And first, I, I feel like I need to just, uh, again, acknowledge and appreciate your um, your strength and your willingness to come talk about this um, with us today. I can imagine the last few weeks have just been an unending uh, you know, source of, of pain and stress. And so um, we're just grateful um, for you sharing this perspective with us and with our with our audience. And I think what what you said about the the narrative that is happening, the um, the sort of control of the conversation uh, that many people are experiencing, whether they're conscious of it or not uh, right now and, and coming out on the side of, you know, a, a sort of pro-genocide position uh, is, is intolerable and is something that we, you know, we need to challenge. Um, I, this morning, uh, saw the first thing that I saw on social media was actually an image out of New York City with uh, a bunch of um, what was reported, at least, as uh, Jewish protesters who were wearing not-in-our-name shirts and, you know, uh, occupying some public space. Uh, sorry, I missed what it was, uh, but, you know, rallying for a ceasefire and an end to the genocide and occupation and being arrested by the NYPD, which also gets training in part from the Israeli state, the Israeli military, which um, was just sort of an eerie juxtaposition of things to see that, you know, this is not something that's just far away and over there and has no ramifications here uh, in this country as well. And we are absolutely uh, wrapped up in, um, you know, culpability and what is happening uh, in that part of the world right now. Um, pivoting a little bit to our to our next question, the, the last time that you were here, uh, you spoke uh, eloquently to us about the importance of language um, when we're discussing uh, Palestine and Israel and the kind of framing of the conversation. And today in this moment that feels, you know, perhaps more important than ever. There has been such a, a sort of dominant narrative that we see on the mainstream media that we're seeing from our elected officials, from the president himself, um, that is really pushing overtly or even sort of subtly uh, a dehumanizing perspective on Palestinians and a, and a centering of the conversation on the humanity of, of Israelis and the inhumanity of, of Palestinians. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us, particularly through the lens of, of school and education, what responsibility do, um, do schools, do we as educators have to challenge that narrative and to um, introduce a different type of language or perspective into the learning environment um, as we are helping students understand what's happening in the world around them. Yeah, and I think that's the key of it. Um, it the key, Jeff, like it's not, Palestine, this genocide is not, this is a symptom of a much larger problem, right? And this is an example, another example. We've been here before as a country. This is not the first time we see people being erased off the face of the earth and their stories being erased. And this is not the first time that we have named the complicitness of schools and school curriculum in, in, in allowing people to sit back and feel like what's happening is justified um, and to be silent, right? Because if that was the case, then black marginalization in the United States would have ended decades ago, and as would have 
Native American justice. It would have happened centuries ago. And we are not seeing justice for those groups for us to think that all of a sudden people are going to have this growth of consciousness and speak up and speak out. And so I am privileged to be in a district where I get to create a curriculum with my team. And we've been having a lot of conversations, 25, I'm in charge of 25 English teachers, and we have worked to rewrite a curriculum that is centered in social justice and centered in elevating student voice. And, and, and I think the key thing is the biggest part of that is schools have a responsibility to teach kids to ask those critical questions, but also to develop empathy and critical consciousness in ways that we've never had to do that before. Um, it's easy in a lot of ways because so many of our kids have an understanding and an awareness that maybe we didn't have because of social justice. I mean, when I walked into classes and taught students, so many of my students that I've taught in the last five or six years have reached out to check in. They're coming to protest. They're educating their peers. They've done teach-ins in their colleges. And these are not Palestinian students. These are non-Palestinian kids who sat in a classroom and learned how to ask the tough questions. They did the same when George Floyd happened. They did the same when the Southern border uh, issues occurred. They do the same every time there's an injustice because they recognize their responsibility as local and global citizens and sharing their voices and changing the status quo and how important every single person is in that. I read this morning, every uh, something along the lines of like every person thought they couldn't do it said 7 billion people or something like that but like we all keep thinking this is bigger than us this is bigger than us and so we do nothing and nothing changes but there's so many of us out there and even the people that are afraid we need to stop being afraid we need to stop being afraid to have these conversations with kids we need to stop being afraid to get kids to develop this new tools this new skill set and this new toolbox of what they need in order to survive a world that is inundating them in information. How do they sift through fake news? Because that's become a real thing, right? Like we have a president who literally stood up and said, I saw 40 babies beheaded. And then literally minutes later, you know, that had to be, that had to be the truth about that had to be told because it was a blatant lie, but the damage had been done. And still like, even now people are trolls on, on on social media, whenever we post something, come back and they say, you know, 40 babies were beheaded. And we saw, we know that that happened. And, and the president literally, there it, it was very open and very public, that conversation about how that was an, a blatant lie. So when presidential officials are getting up and, I mean, presidents and people who are at that high level of power and government and leadership are standing up and saying these things, yes, we need to get kids to think about that. They need to think about how they're going to vote in the upcoming election when they're, if they're old enough to vote. They need to think about how they hold their elected officials accountable because this is going to affect us. We have not seen the worst of it yet. America's involvement in all of this and they're supporting all of this financially and politically, this isn't going to end here. This is going to cause huge frictions across the country. People are divided. People here are divided. It's already causing hate to, to spark up here. It's affecting us. And we haven't seen the end of it. We haven't seen the worst of it. The blackout is now happening in Gaza. We have not seen the worst of the genocide even. We haven't seen the worst of any of this or the impacts. It's almost winter. Where are those people supposed to sleep? Where are they going to eat? They have no electricity. They have no water. They have no fuel. They have nothing. They have no medical supplies. And, and winter is upon us. It's getting colder as we speak here. It's getting colder there too. Where are those people supposed to go even if the ceasefire that the United Nations asked for happens right now? How do they start to, to pick up? Where does the PTSD? Those There's so many images of children that are sole survivors of their family looking for their, their loved ones. What are those kids going to grow up to be? 
what is going to be in their hearts besides revenge for the person who, the people who wiped their entire family away? This is not the end of anything. If there are any survivors left, hate only breeds more hate. And we have not learned that yet. We have only seen that in our past. And it's not, we, you know, the biggest thing is too, like, if we're going to talk about schools, we need to stop talking about this like it started 20 days ago. This is an issue that started way before 1948. There are plenty of, of political officials that are talking about the involvement of the West to create the situation that exists in the Middle East right now. We have to look at the full picture. We have to get kids to examine the entire picture and not just the single story or the one-sided story that fits a political agenda, right? And continues to preserve a status quo. We need to look at the irony of these situations when we look at a history. Yes, the Holocaust happened and it was unfortunate. It does not in any way justify what's happening today in Palestine. There's no justification of it. Putting those two things together is absolutely not acceptable. They are two separate events that cannot be conflated. I have every right and so does everyone else to question a political regime in what is happening today. This has never been a religious war. Silencing us with the accusation of anti-Semitism, coming to school boards and saying, if we teach a Palestinian novel, it's anti-Semitic, conflating those two things together and scaring people from integrating these narratives altogether. It starts with the educators. We need to do the work. Some of the most aggressive people that have ha that have been silencing students and teachers are educators. It's not kids. Kids have been more willing to listen to each other and to share and validate and elevate and just appreciate, if not respect, even if we're different, we respect each other enough to learn from each other. Our children are better than we are. They are more open to these things than we are because they've been exposed to more. They're not living in a world where there's only one side of the story. It's the adults, the adults that are working to indoctrinate and the adults that are working to to really immerse kids in one side with their locus of control that is leading to so many of these issues where we're seeing this domino effect. We have to wake up. We have to. I keep saying being a teacher, I've been saying for decades now, teaching is heart work. It's healing work. We have the opportunity to heal. And it's not just, it's Palestine now, but we have seen time and time again that when we allow injustice to happen in one space, it's just a matter of time before it sparks up with who's next? Who's next? This isn't our first genocide as a people. We've seen Bosnia. We've seen genocide happen in so many different parts of the world. This is not the first genocide to happen. And for these countries that claim that they, like, I just, I keep thinking back to like the Olympics and how so many people were critical of Qatar's uh, workforce and their labor laws and how inhumane they were. And I'm thinking, you're the very people that are okay cutting food and water from children. You're the very people that think it's not enough bloodshed for us to have a humanitarian ceasefire. You're the people that are that are supplying money and 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 political power and soldiers, American soldiers. It's like we don't need that money here. Like we have people that don't have insurance or that are, are not able to get a proper education or schools that are struggling with funding. And still, as a country, we have been complicit and we have been supportive and we have been in agreement with the with with the decisions our governments are making. The hypocrisy that we are seeing in the world is what we need to teach our kids to question and stand up to. And I will say it time and time again, it is Palestine now, but who is next? Right? If you are quiet, you are opening the door for what is next and what will it look like? And what will the lies be to justify it? Right? And what will those people expect from the rest of the world? And how will the world let them down again and again and again? Like we've looked let past past uh, history of like 
of genocide and, and killings and all of these other things happen historically, right? Like the Holocaust, the silence of the world allowed it to happen, right? All of these things that we're looking at historically, they happened because people stood by and let them happen. And here we are again, silent. We're not saying anything. And so it's only going to open the door for more of this and more like this. And that's going to create hate and hate will only breed more hate. And we are going to continue seeing this domino effect. And this time we're having conversations with countries, entire countries that are nuclear powers. Like what is going to happen if this escalates and other countries get involved? Are we looking at another World War III? It's a scary prospect, no matter which way you look at it. But I feel like we're just, we're playing here and poking the bear and waiting to see what happens next. And everybody, I mean, I even watched a video that went viral of a lady speaking about the, pro the Palestinian protests and saying that we must have all been a part of this planning because there were so many flags and so many people showing up to these protests that we were all complicit with the attack that happened on October 7th, that we must have known and we, we were preparing in advance. And that's why there's so many flags. Like, how ridiculous. Even like, they're, like we haven't seen in a country with the, like so many immigrants, we don't see parades with people from different countries holding uh, flags. You know, people don't, it, it's every immigrant has a flag of their nation and their home country in their house. So, but just, and, and people feeling like, yeah, you're right. I didn't think of that. Like it's this mob mentality and this group think that we have in the United States where people aren't questioning what they're seeing and what they're experiencing that's leading us to where we are right now. And that's a scary thing that we really need to disrupt in schools. I don't even know if I answered your question. I apologize. But there, if you just, I feel like there's so much background here. And we keep looking at this situation as if it started 20 days ago. And the reality is that we can't, we have to look at, like I keep telling people, if we're going to look at things from 20 days ago, yeah, maybe the person who who hit first or who took the first punch was 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 Gaza. But we can't. These are people who have been in a concentration camp for 15 years. They have been denied their basic human rights. They have no access to the basic things that people have access to. These are people, everybody in Gaza was displaced in 1948 and again in 1967. These are people who have decades of trauma and have been the, on the receiving end of bombing and war in the most violent ways. If you are 19, you have lived through five wars in Gaza, and that's all you know. What we are seeing on television, it's not the first time they experience it. We cannot fault people for speaking up and fighting back when they have tried peaceful protests. And we saw the results of peaceful protests and the attacks of them when, on them when they were peacefully protesting just a couple of years ago. Right. So they have the right. They have tried every means of speaking up that was peaceful. They've tried civil disobedience. They've tried agreements. They've tried conversation. And we want to sit here and talk about Hamas and we want to blame Hamas for everything because now Hamas is the devil. The war started in Palestine in 1948. Hamas didn't come into fruition until the 1980s. The West Bank has no Hamas. That's the other side of the Palestinian territories. They're under attack just like Gaza is. There's no way that we can try to create and elevate this monster that we want to blame for everything. The only monster here is the monster that's committing genocide right now and trying to justify it in every way that they can by feeding the entire world misinformation. If there wasn't something horrific happening in Palestine now, they would not feel the need to cut off all the electricity and all of the internet. They would not have anything to be ashamed of and they would not be trying so hard to silence the media and everybody else. Even the algorithms, even Instagram and Facebook have been 
not share, like they've been uh, not post allowing people to post and we've had to do like algorithm breaks in order for us to get some of our stories there. There wouldn't be such a concentrated effort to silence people if what we knew we were doing was honorable. If we just stopped to think about that, we would question everything that was happening here, but we're not thinking. We are just taking it all in without asking any questions. That's the biggest issue here. Yeah, well, a lot of questions are being asked by students right now. I know I'm not the only teacher who has been asked over the last several weeks by various students about what's going on, like just like basic like questions like, hey, Rustin, what, like what's actually happening? Like they're, they're seeing all these images. They are coming across all these posts on their social media. And a lot of students, they haven't had any education in the history of this, of this struggle here. So some teachers out there are maybe just now coming around to realizing that they do want to um, do some intentional work into bringing some visibility um, into their own curriculum on the regarding the Palestinian struggle. And last time you were on our show, you spoke about sharing uh, resources with educators, sharing books and, and other things with educators across the nation who were committed to to bring visibility to the Palestinian experience. And um, now there might be some teachers who are listening right now who, despite all the pressure to stay quiet, despite the fear of what might happen if they speak on this issue, there are educators out there who are now coming around to it and now want to do right by either their own Palestinian students or by Palestinians in general and humanity in general uh, when it comes to the um, all the issues you just pointed out with hate beginning hate and, and who might be next. So what do you have to say to educators out there who, who might be looking for how to get started in bringing visibility uh, to the Palestinian experience into their classrooms now? I mailed out 400 boxes the last time we spoke to educators across the country. Yeah. And I have a hundred more ready to go, um, waiting for mm. my last shipment of books to arrive so that I can send those out. And I will make 500 more if I need to, because I always say, educate a teacher and you're educating an entire village. Our teachers are where the change is going to happen for every marginalized group. It's going to happen in schools. It's not going to happen on Capitol Hill. I always say that, like we put so much impact and, and effort and focus on like our elected officials who've only let us down time and time again. But those kids that are sitting in our classrooms will one day be those elected officials. And so our effort has to be twofold. And that is to make sure that kids are asking the right questions and getting access to the information. So when they are curious, Manuel, those teachers who are in front of them are answering those questions with fidelity and with honesty and with authenticity and not by replicating and immersing more and more kids with single stories like we've seen historically in so many of our school spaces. And so, yes, email me, reach out to me, DM me your address. You will get a box as soon as I get my shipment of books. Some of them are backed up because a lot of people are ordering them. I'm also happy to share resources. If you're a part of NCT, we've done specials on elevating Arab voices. We will be speaking at conferences in NCSS and NCTE. Um, we did eight sessions last year. We have six this year with different Palestinian and Arab speakers in general talking about Arab issues, including Palestine, because it's not just Palestinians who face marginalization, but anybody who's Arab, because for most people, they can't tell the difference between an Arab and a Muslim. And that's one of the major issues. There's so little that is known about the Arab identity in America. And I feel like that is by design because it just helps to kind of group us all in one big group and treat us all the same way. Um, and so there's sessions on that. There is things that people are putting out. Reach out to me. I can tell you, I'll give you a list of people to follow on social media who are constantly posting and putting out good material and creating material on a bunch of different fronts. Follow them. Uh, you know, I, I, I would say go out there and do your work and do your research, but I can't even say that because so much of what you're going to find is that single story replicated over and over again. So reach out to me. I have created a Wakelet page of resources and I'll share it with you, Manuel and Jeff. 
um, so that you can also share it with anybody who reaches out that uh, has some things in it. And we're kind of adding to it as we go, as things are developed. Unfortunately, there's not a lot. Um, if you have a locus of control, let's get rid of things like the Kite Runner and replace it with Mornings and Janine. Let's get rid of the Kite Runner and replace it with, they called her Lioness with the lemon tree, where, where as long as the lemon trees grow, there's so many good texts and own voices that we can put into the curriculum proactively uh, and, and really diversify. So I teach in a district where, I mean, I, my kids go to a district where there's so many Arab and, and, and Muslim students and there's so many students from diverse backgrounds, yet they're still teaching the dead white men. And so like we joke with my oldest daughter, who's 26 and my youngest, who's 16, that if she saved her assignments and submitted them, she would have been able to get all her full scores without putting in any effort because the curriculum hasn't changed, even though the whole world around us has. And so I think that responsiveness in education and when you have a locus of control, diversifying voices, creating opportunities for students to really become content creators in your classroom spaces and share. I always say to my students, you are going to be the people who are going to create the text that we're all going to learn from. And if I create a safe enough space in my classroom where kids can really bring their whole selves in and I allow them, even if it's an English classroom, and I encourage them to translanguage and bring their culture, their cultural pluralism and their, their diversity into the space, then the, the, the whatever they produce as content creators is going to be something we all learn from. And that's the best resource. We have the best resources in our classrooms already. It's the people that are in the space, the kids. And there's nothing more refreshing than to say to a kid, you matter enough to me for me to say, bring your whole self into the space and be who you are. And then use technology and leverage all of these wonderful tools that came out during COVID for us to connect our communities to communities that are more diverse. And you don't have to, there's no way as much as I study and I read, and I consider myself an equity advocate, and I'm constantly learning that I will know everything about every group of people. But proactively, I can create space for students to not, for me, not to be the gatekeeper of what kids know and what they're exposed to, but for them to elevate their lived experiences, for them to understand that we are different based on our lived experiences and our values will be different based on our lived experiences, for us to understand how important it is for us to heal our world by understanding each other better and, and respecting those differences and that how much stronger as a community we are because those are the foundations of who we are as a classroom community and as a school community. And when I start to develop and build those connections between students from different communities, whether I have a homogenous school district or one that's more diverse, the experiences of people in different places are going to be different and they are getting all of those windows into different experiences and different viewpoints so that when one single story emerges in the news or anywhere else or in a novel or in something that they're reading or experiencing or they're hearing, they know that even if I read one novel on Arabs, it is not, we are not a monolith. Our histories are so complex. I say, I always say I have three, I have two sisters and the three of us are so, so different that if you were, if each of us was going to write a book, they would read so differently. And we grew up in the same house with the same parents. But what happened after we became adults in our lives, really, we're so, I can't tell you how different my sisters and I are. There's no way one novel could represent the three of us and we're three sisters. And so like understanding that and just giving kids the opportunity to become content creators instead of just content consumers where we're consuming blindly without questioning, that is our locus of control as teachers. You can be in the most politically charged, high censorship schools. And we can still create space within our locus of control to show kids that we love who they are and we embrace who they are and we are giving them space to have agency and voice in our classrooms. And that in and of itself is going to, that's our long-term investment as a country. That's what's going to heal us.
That's what's going to change this narrative and every other narrative that we have seen historically like it and avoid us avoid us from being coming back to the space again. So if we want to really talk about change, there's nobody. And I spoke to a group of upcoming high school students who want to be teachers just a couple of days ago. And I said to them, you have the power to change the world. You need to understand how powerful you are as an educator. Our positionality is one of so much power. And if we can just sit in that for a minute, we would understand that we have the power to change and heal this, this, this world in so many different ways if we just took that seriously. And we took a step back to unlearn and do the learning that was necessary of first before we can actually engage with kids to do this work. Hmm. That is a, an incredibly important point and one that, one that deeply resonates uh, with me and kind of brings me back to... Um, to a lot of the ideas I entered uh, the, you know, the teaching profession with. Um, and our next question, um, our final question for you today, Dr. Jaber, um, also deals with some of the, the challenges, I, I, you, I guess you might say, that uh, folks who are attempting to or wanting uh, to do what you're naming, uh, even though it's frankly just shameful that this should be the reality for many folks right now, um, but folks who are wanting to bring Palestinian, uh, Arab, or Muslim voices into the curriculum, folks who are wanting to explore uh, the realities of what's happening in Palestine right now um, into their classroom, are also existing in a real climate of fear, uh, which I know you, of all people, know, know too well right now. Uh, fear that they might be called anti-Semitic uh, by, you know, by default for discussing anything about uh, Palestine and, and the lives of Palestinians. Fear that they um, support terrorism. Fear, fear that they are uh, unpatriotic or somehow, you know, against uh, the United States in some way. Um, and these are these are very real concerns that, that folks are having that are silencing at least a portion of folks out there who might otherwise uh, be naturally inclined to want to explore this and want to bring those voices into the curriculum. And so you as someone who has been uh, just incredibly courageous and bold in, in your speaking and your public stance on this issue, um, wonder if you can share any guidance or uh, words of advice or even just thoughts, uh, reflections for educators out there who might want to take this step forward and are, are grappling with and trying to think about uh, how to address the very real fear that they're experiencing um, in their political uh, context. I think we have to give kids more credit, right? Like if you're in one of those, first of all, if there's any administrators here listening and you think that when these things are happening to kids in the world and you're not addressing them, that they care about anything else that we're talking about in schools, you're delusional. And I'm going to say that point blank to every administrator who's listening here. We need to wake up because right now my daughter doesn't care for some reason, metaphors and science and math and everything else. It just doesn't matter. It's not important. So if we're not acknowledging the actual things, we talk about the social emotional health of our kids. And so much of that comes from the fact that we don't want to name what our kids are experiencing. We want to act like nothing is happening and continue teaching and hope that they get it, right? And when some of our most marginalized groups are so steeped in the oppression that they're in, whether it's socioeconomics or the silencing, and they're not successful in our school spaces, we point the finger at them and they say, you failed, right? But we failed them. And we're continuing to fail by not acknowledging people's lived experiences. So for every administrator who has a locus of control and is supposed to be mowing the lawn and allowing and encouraging teachers to take these stances and fighting the parents and the communities that are 
silencing schools and literally controlling those schools, you need to take a stance before anybody else. And so that's my first message. The second thing is for teachers, create learning experiences where the kids are asking the questions, right? We are writing a media studies unit as we speak for my E3 class. And we spent, we had half a day yesterday to do some curriculum work. And we're not going to decide what we're going to bring into it, but we're going to ask the right questions so kids will bring current events into the space. And once the kids bring it in, nobody's going to silence you, right? You're not, and you're not the gatekeeper. It's what's on kids' minds. When Roe versus Wade happened, my students came into the classroom and said, Dr. J, can we please not do whatever it is that you have planned? Can we sit around and unpack this together? Absolutely. The kids bought it into the space. I had a plan to do something different that day. The kids felt like they needed to unpack and have and utilize our speaking and listening skills, our rhetorical skills, our persuasive skills, all the things that we do in English to unpack a conversation where our class was literally on two different sides of the argument. And we sat down around in a circle, the Native American tradition, we're all on the same page and platform with our norms, and we unpacked a current event. We have to normalize the idea that we need to bring the world into our classrooms all the time, not just now. Normalize those things, because when it becomes a normal thing, then you're not stopping to bring something that's unnatural that people are going to resist. We have to normalize the idea that we need to create learning experiences where the kids are also bringing in their lived experiences and what they're thinking about into the classroom space. For everybody who's sitting around in the summertime writing an entire year's curriculum, shame on you if you're still doing that, because you are not being flexible enough to meet your students' needs. We're not meeting the needs of the world, and we are still inculcating kids with things that we learned when we were studying to be educators or things that we are, we use when we were students ourselves. If we are not integrating the world and all of its changes, and if you haven't taught post-COVID, if you, are, if you have taught post-COVID, you know that teaching as a profession has completely changed. We can't continue to do the same things that we have always done. And that requires us to allow kids agency to determine what their learning looks like in a lot of these spaces. And if we're planning correctly and we're, we're designing instruction correctly, the world is going to come into the curriculum by default, right? It's going to have a place there. Whether we're getting kids to take an article once a week and talk about things that are in the newspaper, that article is gonna come in from one of your 25 students in a classroom. There's no way nobody's gonna talk about Palestine-Israel with Palestine-Israel happening in the world right now. And then you have to tackle it as an educator. You have to create space for it because the kids are bringing it in. If we're doing things on word choice, what better opportunity is it for us to talk about how headlines about Palestinians talk about how Palestinians die, but Israelis are killed? Why don't we have that conversation, right? And we're not intentionally bringing in Either or, we are bringing in real-world headlines and events that are happening now to interrogate standards and things that we would have been teaching anyway. You have these opportunities, right? And if nothing else, if you're in that district where you can't even do that much because it's so antagonistic, then you need to just create space for kids to be content creators and use the tools to connect them into different communities and allow them to journal and talk and have some agency to tell their stories. Like I do a whole counter-story unit. Even when I taught AP research, I taught it as research as a form of activism. And I taught it with the lens of how can we do research that's going to give people information about what needs to be changed to serve marginalized communities. And they, they created entire units, entire dissertation, uh, uh, dissert, mini dissertations at a high school level that researched black and brown voices and marginalized communities and put out research that they created in their communities that, that could change and make their communities better for oppressed groups. We can be doing this work in small scales. I didn't tell them what to study. I just said, hey, why don't we consider research in this way? Your research can be transformative. It's not just you checking off boxes for this assignment, but think about how you can actually leave your footprint in the community that you're in. What's important to you? 
Let's talk about important issues that we're facing as individuals. And we generated a list of things. They brought all the issues to the table. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't give them a list to choose from. We generated a list together. Our kids know so much more than we think they know. Trust the kids to be the agents of a classroom. They can do it. They'll bring it in. If the schools won't allow you to bring it in, we shouldn't be the gatekeepers anyway. We should be talking about what the kids need us to be talking about, and they will bring these issues to the forefront. Well, uh, Dr. Jaber, um, there's so much to talk about and, and unpack in today's conversation. And I just really want to thank you again for joining us today. I know that um, this is just a, a very difficult time for you and for your family and for many folks out there and just deeply grateful for you lending your, your insights and your perspective and your expertise um, to our team here and our audience here and all the above. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you again. And I want to apologize because I know that this is not my best self, but I feel like this is the best that I can be in the moment. And so I appreciate you for taking in my scattered thoughts. I hope everybody who is listening today just walks away with the idea that, and I hate to preface and ground this in the idea that we have to have an interest for us to stand up for each other, but we really do have an interest in in, in not seeing our world take these directions and not allowing this violence to, inc- to occur. Like I keep I've been I've been doing in my um, public speaking in my keynotes that I've been delivering in the last few months. I've been talking about the idea of radical dreaming, which comes from Jamila Dugan, and just thinking about like my own radical dream for my grandkids to live in a world that's so different than the one that we're living in today. And in the last couple of weeks, I've just been mourning my dream, <laughs> and I feel like it's just so much further along away. It feels so much more far than it, than it was when I was talking about it just three weeks ago. And that makes me so sad because I can't tell you the aggression that I faced as a student, the aggression that I continue to face as a teacher, the aggression that my children, every single one of my children's lives, and I have three kids, has been defined by macroaggressions in school spaces by teachers. And so I pray and I hope and I dream that we can have a world that's different, that just allows our kids to just be proud of who they are, whatever that is, right? Without feeling like they have to convince people that their humanity matters, without us convincing people that their story is valid, without us without us having to convince people that they should be allowed to bring their whole selves into a space unapologetically and we'll love them anyway, right? But it just feels so far away today. And I feel like every time we take one step back in the name of equity, one step forward, we take 15 steps back. And I just keep thinking like if Martin Luther King were here, if all of these equity advocates that we consider terrorists in their time that we were afraid of when they were alive were here, what would they say? Like, it's shameful. I'm, I am, I'm, I'm sad at the direction that we are taking in general, not just with this, with this and a lot of other things. We need to do better. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, couldn't, could not agree more. I think that's a, a perfect note for us to, to conclude on. And, and um, Dr. Jaber, there is no need for you to apologize. Uh, you, maybe, maybe today was not your best self, but it was um, your brilliant self nonetheless. And um, again, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your, your words and your courage um, in joining us today. Um, and um, our thoughts are certainly with you and your family, not only in the local context here and, and remaining safe, but also with your uh, extended family uh, abroad. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jaber. Thank you. 
All right, folks, that is it for today's seminar. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, please stick around. Next up is our class dismissed. All right, folks, it's time for that part of the episode where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. This is class dismissed. And for those of you who routinely and regularly uh, check in or tune in to all of the above, uh, definitely a shout out to you. Um, so as we mentioned earlier in the episode, this is two full episodes back to back, partially because of the pressing, um, just all that's happening right now and, and our intention to get this episode to you as quickly as possible. But also because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be out for a little bit in, in November and you might not get another video episode, another full episode for a little bit. And in fact, we probably won't be back with a full episode that has a class dismissed um, anytime before Thanksgiving break. So we wanna take a moment right now to express our tremendous gratitude to all the educators out there who are doing the good, hard, difficult work of fighting for educational justice, uh, including everybody in the AOTA fam. We're very thankful for you and all that you have done to, to help push us, but also help us grow and, and help us get into more educators' feeds and timelines and uh, get these conversations out there. Uh, we very much appreciate y'all. And for the classroom teachers out there, Man, I know. I know how difficult it is teaching these days with not just with all that's going on in the world, but just like still like just all the changes that we're seeing with our young people and the impact of of technology and the pandemic and, and all of that. And here you are approaching uh, Thanksgiving break. And, you know, just shout out to you for hanging in there and doing your best. And we we wish you the best as November marches on. And uh, Jeff, man, who do you want to shout out? Well, I want to echo what you said there, Manuel, of course, to all the educators out there. And in line with today's seminar, I would also like to shout out three entities in particular that I think um, I have found a great educational resource from, comfort from, solidarity from uh, in, in these kind of crazy times where sometimes it feels like speaking the truth uh, a simple truth like the genocide of a people is unacceptable uh, can be a thought that gets you ostracized um, or gets you accused of things that, uh, you know, that you have not done. And there are three organizations I, that I just want to throw out there, give some shout outs to, encourage folks to check out if you have not already, um, that I think provide resources for educators who want to take the important and courageous step towards doing the same. So these three entities are uh, Rethinking Schools, uh, which is a um, kind of progressive, justice-oriented educational publication. They, they have a magazine. They also uh, host different events, articles, and uh, publish books as well. So Rethinking Schools. Um, the second is the Zen Education Project. We've um, had on uh, a couple of guests affiliated with the Zen Education Project over the years, um, but you can go uh, to their website. An amazing treasure trove of uh, incredible content and resources for teachers, for educators generally to use um, in, in your classroom or in schools generally. And then the last is Democracy Now!, which I'm biased, is my favorite news source uh, that's out there, but I think has done an amazing job for decades now of telling people-centered news. 
and uh, news that gets behind the kind of uh, soundbite environment that we experience when you know we go to cable news to really uncover what's the human story, what's the justice-oriented story of the things happening in the world around us. Their coverage of what's happening uh, with the genocide and ethnic cleansing in Palestine right now is no exception, um, but a news source that centers the humanity of all people, including those people um, experiencing the most oppressive conditions. And so um, check out those, those uh, organizations, folks. Lots of good content there, and keep up the great work as we head into the holiday season. Yeah. Well, that about does it for this episode of All of the Above. We appreciate y'all. Remember, you can go to our website, AOTA Show, for all of our previous conversations. We've had so many dope guests over the years, and uh, all those conversations still very, very much relevant today. So definitely hit us up. Uh, also, if you are interested in supporting our little two-person operation here, AOTAShow.com slash support uh, to help keep this going. All right, so remember, we love y'all, and uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>